How many of you have been on a walk recently? A couple of you. All right, which proves the point. It's kind of a dying art, isn't it? Most of us, you get home, you maybe in the older days, you would go for a walk or whatever. I remember going for a walk, kind of lived out in the country a little bit with a family, and so we would occasionally go for a walk. And the motivation that my parents would use for me was, let's go pick some dewberries. And so we'd pick dewberries, and you know, because then after the dewberries, you get you get the pie, right? Okay, so yeah. So that was one of my deals. And so we'd go, and I would do that until the one day I was picking dewberries, and a rattlesnake jumped out, and uh, it turned from a walk to a run. I was done. Uh, I didn't do that anymore. But So you think about walking and this idea of walking, and all throughout Scripture, God uses this metaphor for us of walking, and it's tied to living, that we're to live life, and that if you're not living, you're dying, you're dead, you're not in motion. And so it's a very practical idea for us is that we are to be moving forward, to be walking forward as we live, we're constantly taking steps. And yes, there's times for us to rest and to kind of catch our breath, but if we're moving in a steady pace, at a steady walk, we can get from point A to point B and um, not venture too far off. And so it's this idea of, of moving forward and taking steps. As we continue our series on better, I want to think about as we do life and we walk together, that we are to do life and walk, not just individually, but in community. And so when you think about walking, people have all kinds of different purposes for walking. Maybe you've been out recently and you've seen somebody and they have their, you know, their earbuds in and they're kind of going, they're jamming to whatever music and they're oblivious to the world, right? And so they're going, they're moving, they're trying to get their exercise. They've got 20 minutes or 30 minutes and they're counting their calories. They're looking at their watch, making sure their heart rate's at a certain thing. And they're, they're moving. That's what they're all about is that walk. And there's no one else in the world. Y'all see any of those people? Even even MS-150, some of those have been biking just like that, right? They don't care, they don't, whatever. And then you have the other ones, you have the power walkers, right? There's two or three, maybe four of them, and they're together, and they're power walking and power talking. And so they're moving and they're going, and so it's not just about the walk, it's about the fellowship, but they know that, hey, we're walking fast, so we got to talk fast because we got lots of things to share. And so you're moving. You can imagine life groups like that. If you were to walk in and you got 30 minutes, everybody's trying to cram it all in and get going. And then, and then you have those... Um, those moments where you see that there's people kind of all together. There's a group, maybe of five, six, seven, eight, maybe even nine or ten, and they're kind of walking. And usually this is the shopping walk, right? You've seen this maybe even around town, downtown. People are walking together, and they're kind of there's there, there's definitely a group together, but they're kind of moving. Some kind of doing their own things, and they're moving out and this kind of a thing. And so there's people, and they're moving, and they're they're moving and they're walking together because they want to show something. And so all throughout life, there are different types of walks. And what I want us to grasp this morning is for us is that we are to walk together in community. And that I know that in Western culture, so many times when we talk about faith, we talk about faith as an individual, this is a Chris's faith thing. And yes, there's that part of it. But the Eastern thought, the biblical mindset isn't an individual you, but it's a community you. That whenever they talk about you, it's not just Chris, it's us together, that we're doing life Together, And so that even in this little metaphor of walk, when they talk about you are walking, it's a plural you. you we are walking together because faith is not to be lived alone. It's not to be lived on an island. It's to be lived in community. And one of the things that as we do that, as we walk together and live together, one of the things we have to discern and to decipher is who are we going to do life with? Because even within the church, there are people that we don't need to be doing life with. Because their motivation isn't truly Jesus. Okay? 
Their motivation is whatever it is, but it's not Jesus. And so as we do life together, we even have to discern that. And one of the very first things that we teach our children when they go to school, we don't say just pick anybody to be your friend, do we? We say find good friends, people of good character, content, and we want them to. And that takes time. You don't figure that out the first day of kindergarten. All right. They kind of make those quick judgments and they come in and they got my new best friend. Well, by the end of the next week, they got a new best friend. And so we, we quickly make decisions. And so truly finding who our friends are and doing life together takes a long time and a long walk. But we only have one life. And for us to have this one life, the best life that we can possibly live as followers of Jesus is to walk long with people that love Jesus and are motivated by Jesus and that will help us grow and be challenged. And those moments when we can't see someone else, that there's something coming, there's a distraction We're looking over here and we have a blind spot that a friend will stop and maybe even pull us back before we step in front of the taxi and say, don't take that step. That's going to hurt. And that's what it looks like for us to choose friends. And so if you have your Bibles, open up and turn with me to Proverbs chapter 6. And thinking about this age-old idea of friends. And I know some of you are thinking, hey, I'm 40, 50, 60. If I don't know how to choose friends by now, then I'm in trouble. Well, some of you are. In trouble. You need, we need better friends. And, and one of the other things that I want you to think about as we look at this and kind of pull this mirror in, we need to look at the mirror and say, maybe the reason I don't have good friends is because I'm not the person of character. And so I'm not attracting and I don't have friends like that because I'm not that type of a friend. And so again, that's the beauty of God's word. It is this, like a two-edged sword. It brings life and it brings death. And so this morning, I think this is one of those passages as we look at what does it look like to be a good friend The other side of that is, am I a good friend as well? Proverbs chapter 6, starting in verse 16. That we want to walk with the wise and become wise. Proverbs chapter 6, starting in verse 16. It says this, there are six things that the Lord hates. So this is kind of, kind of jumps out there. I mean, it's pretty strong language. The Lord hates. I mean, he's, we don't hear this very often, but he despises it. If the Lord hates something, then he wants to cut it off. He wants to separate. And so, Here the author of Proverbs is saying to us, listen, the Lord hates. He wants to cut it off and separate it. And then he goes even further. He says, there's seven things. Even some of your your translations will say even seven or even more seven that are detestable to him. And so the next few words he's going to describe a not-so-good friend. And the first five descriptions and characteristics of a not-so-good friend, he actually literally uses body parts, body language for us. And so the very first thing that he doesn't like is haughty eyes. I know some of you are thinking of like a haughty eyes. I mean, what does that mean? Like go around looking for hotties? I don't know what that is. No, that is literally eyes that whenever they look and they perceive, they look out, their perspective is, I am me and I am better than you. An arrogant self-conceiting, a conceited self-image. And so most of the time with haughty eyes, with that kind of a mindset, it also comes with it a judging spirit. Because what they're doing is, what we're doing in that moment is we're looking out, we see you walk into a place, and we see something about you, and we begin to judge you, we begin to treat you like cattle or some other thing, and we become like um, judges at an animal farm or something and say, okay, look, there's something wrong with them, there's something here, there's a defect and all that. And most of the time, the defects that we find in other people are the things that we see in ourselves. And so we're looking at them and we're lowering them in our own eyes so that we can then be placed 
up. And so here, who wants a friend that whenever you walk into the room, they're constantly thinking, hey, I am better than you, and they're finding fault with you. A not-so-good friend is one that's going to be continually cutting you down and judging you and finding fault with you because they're going to be the ones that you're in the darkest hours. You're not going to want to call them and say, hey, be honest with me, be truthful with me because they're not being an honest and truthful. Someone that has arrogant, self-conceited, judging eyes. The other part that the author gives us is a lying tongue or literally a forked tongue. If You've heard this term before. Is that they talk out of both sides of their mouth. And so when you're with them, They'll say good things to you. They'll say sweet and pleasing things. They'll say to you the things that they think that you want to hear about yourself. And so you're feeling good about yourself. You're like, hey, they're really my friend. They care about me. They're going to give me that last piece of gum in their um, gum pack. And then the next thing you know that you leave the room and then other people are there and they're not talking nice, sweet, pleasing things about you. They're talking out of this side of their mouth and they're saying, can you believe? Do you know what I heard? Do you know? And so automatically, so here you have someone with a forked tongue. You think they're your friend, and they're going to say nice and pleasing things in front of you, but on the other side, they're saying exactly the opposite. Again, a not-so-good friend, because you never know what's going to come out. The convenience of the tongue, so to speak. They're going to say what they need to say to get friends and to have friends with them. That's not someone you want as a friend. Someone who eyes, who see perspective that they're better than you, or put that perspective out. Someone who speaks out of both sides of their mouth. Then also this idea of hands that shed innocent blood. Now this is a strong image of, of murder. And so it's, that's part of it, that you would shed innocent blood. But even maybe even more than that is this idea of character assassination. That even Jesus says, listen, now you say that murder is this, but I even say that it was the assassination of someone's character so that if you talk bad about someone in such a way that you defame them, that the next time that they walk into a room, people have doubts about who they are because of the words that you've spoken, even if most likely those words aren't true, you've murdered them. And so here again, this is that idea of, hey, they're talking behind your back, they're talking things, and again, they're saying things about you, they're knocking you down, so that the next time that you walk into the room, your character has been assassinated. And the most difficult thing to rebuild is trust in your own name. When you've destroyed your name, when someone doesn't understand the character of who you are, it's difficult to rebuild that. It takes months, weeks, years, and trust to know that, hey, this person is who they say they are. And I've had to filter through all the non-truths, and I've had walk a long way with this person to know that they are they are who I believe that they are, and I can't believe some of these other things of people that have casted doubt on their character. And I know that this would never happen in church. But what I'm telling you is, is that this happens most often in prayer requests, and this happens most often in Sunday school and in life groups. So that what happens is, is this is the scene, is life groups happening and everybody's happy and everybody's talking the good things. And then some of the people leave and other people stay behind. And then we begin to talk about the people that have left and, and really have truthful conversations about the people that have left. That those people that have left, that they need to hear those things. And here's what I want you to understand, church, is it does us no good to not have those difficult conversations. If we truly are doing life together, there are those moments in your feel-good moments of life group and of Sunday school classes and say, stop. Let's just talk for a moment or saying, hey, after this is over, hey, Johnny, hey, Susie, let's go have coffee. Let's 
have this conversation. Again, as true friends doing community together, there are moments we all have blind spots. None of us are perfect. None of us have arrived. And we have to stop this mentality of everything's hunky-dory and never really delving into some of the issues that we need to. Spiritual, emotionally, spiritual health, uh, spirituality is, is a good thing. So he talks about our eyes and he talks about our tongue. He talks about our hands and he talks about what motivates us, our heart. The thing that moves us. And again, in the Eastern thought, the mind and the heart are tied together, and it's what moves you to do things, what you're passionate about, what, what gets you going in the morning. When you get up and you think, man, I've got this to do today, and it kind of provides you the motion, it provides you the energy to do it. And so a not-so-good friend is motivated by a heart of evil schemes, that they see opportunities to benefit themselves even at the cost of their friendship and of other people. And we know these people. We call them Con men, right? And so some of you, you know, we've had friends growing up. We've had friends that are con men. They're able to, to, to talk to us, to kind of appease the situation, hear you what you want to say, kind of do those things. And then the next thing you know, they're literally stealing from you. It could be your own boyfriend or girlfriend. It could be whatever. And they're taking from you because they're all about themselves. And they've devised a wicked scheme. And these people that devise wicked schemes, they are in the game for the long haul because it's about them. And they will do whatever they need to do. They will do whatever deception. They will say whatever they need to do. They will do things along the way, along the path. So in the perfect moment in their scheme, they know down to the very moment, then they can pull the rug from underneath you and you are shocked by it. And the entire time they've been scheming all along the way to pull this out from underneath you. The heart of a deceptive person. They're motivated by themselves. And then also they have feet that rush into evil. The scripture tells us that what should we do whenever we see evil? We're to flee from it, right? As followers of Jesus, that the healthy thing to do is like you're tempted by something and you know who you are and you realize, hey, I'm tempted. I don't need to go get closer to the edge. I don't need to see if the fire's hot. I know that the fire's hot. I know where the edge is at. So instead of tempting it, when I'm tempted, I need to flee and run in the opposite direction because I know my own heart. My own heart is deceptive. My own heart wants the convenient thing. And so that's exactly what a friend that is not a good friend is they lead us to the edge and they say, hey, what do you think? Oh, the fire's really not that hot. And they continue to kind of move you into that place. Why? Because they're there and they want to bring you to that same place, right? So bad character corrupts good character. And so it's so much easier for someone to pull us down to where they are than for us to pull them up. And so these, these people that run to evil are the ones that they're there and they kind of hang out there and they want you to run with them. And again, they'll do anything and say anything to get you to their place because they're stuck in their mess and their junk and their, all those other words that are coming to your mind that you can't say in church. And so all that stuff that they're there and it's muddy and it's nasty and the pig wall and all that, you're like, why can't you get out? And instead of trying to get out, they're trying to get other people in. And they're moved to that place. And for us as followers of Christ, that there's those moments of saying, listen, I see where you're at and I want to help you out. I want to get you out of that place, but I've got to flee. And I've got to bring my friends and we're going to have to help you move out of this place. So he gives us five parts of the body to describe a friend that's not so good. And he kind of follows that up with two other things. He says, slanderous speech. Speech where literally people are paid to become a false witness, that they would get paid to show up into the courtroom so they could steal your property, they could steal your rights, they could steal what you own and make it their own. And that that's, people were literally, that's, that was their job, that was their living, to be paid to be a false witness. 
and that slanderous speech is that, that you would bring and take and steal something that's from someone else. And then also just a spirit of intentional um, conflict, that you have people that they jump into places and jump into things, and they can immediately, they kind of stir up the pot and create dissension and conflict within the group, and that's their spirit. So that's a a not-so-good friend. What's on the opposite end of a not-so-good friend is a a good friend. And so begin to ask yourself these questions. Are these descriptors of me and who I am as a friend? Is The first thing is that you have a humble, teachable spirit. Someone that recognizes that they have blind spots, that they're walking together, and as they walk together with their friends, that they know that, hey, they can get up and ca- caught up in conversation and, and doing life, and in those blind spots, all of a sudden, something can come up and cause them harm, whether it may be a rattlesnake, you're picking a dewberry, or maybe it's a taxi, whatever speed you're doing life in that moment, that there's always blind spots and that true friends walking with us will stop us, even for a moment, stop us and tell us the truth when we need to have the truth told to us. Those moments, a humble, teachable spirit, someone who's honest and will tell the truth, even though they know that it may hurt for a moment, even though it may for a moment in that friendship that it may kind of hurt and they're just kind of like, oh, it stinks. And that's one of the things we struggle with is how, how truthful can we be with our friends? If they're really our friends, we can dig deep in truth. Now, that doesn't mean we can do it right at the beginning of the journey, but we've kind of walked together for a little bit and said, hey, listen, here's some things that we need to talk about, um, but there's an opportunities for us to grow in truth. And again, as we do life together and as we tell truth and we're emotionally healthy in our spirituality, there will come moments where we tell the truth along the way and we develop trust that whenever someone tells us the truth, it's not to hurt us and to bring us down so that they can be raised up and so that we can be raised up together and be transformed in the image of Christ. That's the difference, the motivation, that we don't shed innocent blood, but we fight for the weak and for the innocent. That if you look all over the world, that the reason that there's hospitals, the reason that there's doctors and nurses is because it's been moved by the spirit of the Christian church. It's been moved by the compassion for justice and for fighting for the weak and fighting for the innocent. The very reason that we do missions, the very reason that we fill shoeboxes at Christmas is because we're about moving and stepping into people's lives where they need something more and we're about telling the good news and rescuing them and bringing them out. That's even the, the idea of this word from the New Testament talks about being saved, that you're being rescued, that you have a lifeguard and that lifeguard is Jesus and he's throwing out the red floaty thing and you're, you're literally screaming and crying out for help and he reaches out and grabs you and rescues you. That's our very mission is that the world is crying out and screaming and saying, I need something more. I'm drowning in life, and we have the good news in Jesus Christ. So many times we don't do that, and so that's our mission and our motivation for life and for what we do. Also that we are to be moving in a direction of being people of high character and above reproach. We're not perfect. No one's ever going to be perfect, but we're moving in a direction of looking and acting and thinking and talking a little bit more like Jesus. It's someone that flees from evil, that you have friends, that there's opportunities to do things, to move in certain ways, to make convenient money, to to do whatever it is, and your friends say, stop, no, we're not going to even go to the edge. We're going to flee together and run to a place of safety and a place of life-giving and health-giving. Also a good friend, a forever friend, is someone that's a confidant. And I think this is one of the things that many people struggle about life groups and struggle with friendships and struggle with accountability groups or whatever the word is that you want to use is because typically we're not very good at being confidants. 
that someone shares something and we share it and all of a sudden somewhere along the way that all of a sudden that begins to spill out and we've been given great power and with great power is great responsibility that when we enter into true biblical relationships with people and we develop trust and they begin to share life with us it's in those moments that we become a priest literally the scripture tells us that you are a priest that as a follower of Jesus in those moments when we confess our sins one to another that you become a priest and are in that moment we are to shelter those things and hold those things and to take those things in to help one another grow in Christ and to not hold them against one another. And for so many times, so long in the church, it's been real easy for us. We share things and all of a sudden it's held against us and it's held over us and it keeps us from healthy, life-giving relationships. But true friendship is, listen, I can share with you a little bit of the stuff in my life and you're not going to judge me, you're going to help me, you're going to work with me and we're going to get to this place and at some point those things won't even be a part of my life and they'll be a part of my story, my past, but they're not a part of my present. And again, looking and acting and thinking and being a little bit more like Jesus. And all of us need friendships like this and I think that's one of the reasons that we move from church to church and place to place sometimes is because we're afraid of being known because we've been known before and people use it against us. And as a church, we've got to stop doing that. If you look at the statistics of people that are going to church, even in the Bible Belt, in Dallas and Austin and Houston and places like that, 85 to 95% of the people are now not going to church. There's not a traffic jam on Sundays, people. And part of that is because of the way that we love or the way that we don't love. So again, looking back in the mirror for all of us, we have a spirit of being a confidant, but then also we have a spirit of being reconciling, a spirit of forgiving. That, listen, there's going to be moments where I say something and it hurts you and it's not my intention, or you say something and you hurt me, and we immediately, as adults, we go and we seek each other out and we say, hey, listen, you said this and I don't know if you meant to hurt me or whatever, but, but let's, let's talk about this, let's think about it. And let's work through it so that we can forgive and reconcile so that we can move forward and not deal with this and get out of the, the pothole that we tripped over over here. Let's fix that and move on so we can move forward in our friendship and our relationship and not hold on to old hurts and old pains. Because, listen, a friend loves at all times. A true friend loves at all times. And none of us in this room is perfect. No perfect people are allowed in here. The beauty on the other side is everybody matters to God. And as we are growing and maturing and becoming who God wants us to be, and we develop true friendships, you're going to learn about each other, and there's going to be moments where you're going to be like, I didn't know that. And it may be a little shocking to you, but guess what? It's okay. It's part of their story. It's part of what's brought you together as friends. Forgive and move on. You've got one life. We don't believe in karma. We don't believe in reincarnation. You've got one life. As we sang a little bit earlier, you have the resurrection power in you, Jesus in you, to overcome. You have one life. Walk well. There'll be moments to run, but most of the time you're walking and you're getting friends. And as you do life with these friends, allow your friends to 
to do life with you. And hopefully when you look back over a long journey, you can see friends come in and out for different seasons and different reasons. But that through that, that there's a thread of some people that have done life with you for a long time and have invested well in you. One of my favorite things to do is to get together with one of my best friends. His name is Rick. Once a year, maybe, and we're busy, we're doing life, but we're texting each other, we're sending each other messages, keeping up, praying for each other. And that moment that we sit down together and we begin to just talk over a meal or something, it is like we have not missed a beat. All of us need friends that at 2 a.m. you can call and, and know that there's no judgment. they're going to walk with you, that they love you, that they care about you. They know the deepest, darkest junk in your life, but they see you not through haughty eyes, but they see you through the eyes of Jesus. And they realize that they're more amazed by the grace of God in their own life, that they can look at you and say, I don't care. All of us need people in our lives that can speak deep truth to us and move us and be transformed by us. Let's, let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we have one life to live. May we walk it well. May we find good friends to walk with. Father, may we be those type of friends, that as we even contemplate and think about your word this morning, may we may the mirror of your word reflect back in areas where we need to grow and to change and to be transformed as friends. May you do that in us and through us. For Father, I know the desires, believe, of everyone in this room is to have deep, long-lasting, transformative friendships that when they're 80, 90, 100 they can look and say, I've lived life well with these people. Father, may you be honored through our friendships and the way that we love our friends. It's in your name we pray.